Many of you have been praying for revival for America. If we want to see revival, this is our Bible verse. Here's what it says. Pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. That word glorified, another way to render that is honored in the ESV, just as it did also with you. Would you make that verse your prayer? Uh, I'm not going to put a a cap on saying daily prayer, weekly, whatever, but would you make that a regular part of your prayer life this year? Would you do that? I'm going to do that. Because I believe that this is what needs to happen if our country is going to really, truly change. We're not going to find answers in the political world as much as we want to be involved in that and influence that. We're going to find answers as our hearts are changed and as the Word of God spreads rapidly throughout our country and is honored once again. Not just in the world, but especially in the church. Amen? Where many mainline denominations have become, I would say, in many ways, bankrupt. And the church, you know, in 2021 has a mission and the world is still reeling. And I hate to bring it up, but I'll bring it up because I'm sure you're sick of hearing about it. But COVID is everywhere. (laughs) I remember uh, in the early days when COVID-19 was something that we were hearing about and we watched New York and Uh, some other countries being devastated, but it was kind of a distant thing, and California seemed to be uh, not being hit very hard. Now, about every other person I talk to either has had COVID or knows somebody that has COVID. I won't ask you to raise your hand, because then people will move away from you. uh... But anyway, some of our staff members have gotten it and gotten over it. It's hit some people pretty hard. Um, But I will tell you on a positive note, The Great Barrington Declaration that was signed by thousands of doctors worldwide said that this is really what needed to happen. It needed to go around and people needed to get get it and get over it and build an immunity to it. And Dr. MacArthur was being asked questions. He does a Q&A often with his congregation. And someone was asking Dr. MacArthur about the vaccine. And I know there's all kinds of stuff going around about the vaccine. And I've heard some doctors that I would respect speak highly of it, and then there's other people questioning it and so forth and so on. And they asked Dr. MacArthur about the vaccine and would he take it? And he said he's been vaccinated to travel all over the world. He doesn't know what's in his body at this point because he's done it for the sake of the gospel to enter into different countries and stuff like that. But he said, if you get COVID, you have a 99.98% chance of getting over it with no lasting effects the vaccine is 94% effective, so do the math. <laughs> there it is. Now, the Great Barrington Declaration, signed by immunologists and uh, doctors that know a lot more than me, said that what they believed needed to happen in the U.S. and, for that matter, the world is something called targeted protection. That is, that the most vulnerable would be protected from the virus, but that everybody else would go back to their normal life. Part of this argument is because there are other effects in locking people down and locking people in. And I don't need to go back over them with you, but there are suicide rates, abuse, uh, you know, there's depression. There's all these other things that are byproducts of locking people down and locking people in. By the way, uh, they say that 20% of COVID cases, people get them in their own homes, So uh, you have no guarantee, one in five cases apparently, you're going to get in your house. And I have heard about people who have done everything perfectly, and they still got COVID, and they were being extra, extra careful. But I will say this, that COVID is a real thing. It does hit certain people who are vulnerable hard. And when it hits close to home, that's especially when, you know, you, you stand up and take notice and say, you know, this is something that we need to... Uh, be careful with. We need to be wise as Christians, but we also believe that you can make a responsible, informed, independent choice. And that's why, you know, we've been open since May, but we've offered three different ways to worship. People who want to sit outside can sit outside. We have some people who come in and wear masks, and that's great. We have hand sanitizer. We have, we've been streaming our services since this all began, And we've had a good portion of our congregation that have stayed away from the public gatherings and stayed home. And if you're vulnerable or you're in that category of vulnerability, we would encourage you to do just that, to continue to 
stay away from uh, crowds and stuff like that. Now, you can see that as we sit here, we're largely spread out, and we've tried to be as wise as we can with the way we handle things, but we're not going to stop meeting because we believe that this is, not only is it uh, essential, it is actually vital. And uh, I will also say, I see the contradictions in society, some things that are open. Yesterday, uh, I was at Tom's Farms, and I was walking by people. I was this close to people waiting for a pizza because... That is just what I do. But anyway, and, and people were outside, and they were, uh, some were masked, and some did not, not have masks on. And the irony was, Tom's Farms had all of their outside tables roped off. You couldn't sit outside, but people were sitting outside on block walls, and we ate the pizza on top of my car, uh, laid it out there, and, and there we go. It, it's just, and then, you know, to see the hypocrisy with our political leaders, where they continue to, you know, give us speeches about, you know, don't do this, don't do that, and then they're doing the very thing that they say for us not to do. Even with that, though, um, there, there have been some people who have lost loved ones. There have been people who have, uh, you know, been hit pretty hard, and there are some people that are still feeling the effects of dealing with COVID, and that may be you, or maybe you know somebody. And we've had, uh, you know, people who have been, succumbed to this thing. And uh, so we have, to, we have to move forward with wisdom, but uh, we trust that you can make the right decision for you and your family. And uh, we're praying, obviously, for everybody to be protected and to be able to live their lives. But I'll tell you, there's a, there's a lot of layers to this thing. And uh, I pray that this will be behind us soon. But the calendar turning over doesn't mean that it's behind us, right? You guys have heard now there's another strain of covid uh, yes, there's another strain, and it's apparently now showing up in the United States as well. So, you know, what does that mean now? Well, what that means is we're going to continue to do what we've been doing. We need to be wise, but again, we're going to continue to honor the Lord and encourage one another as we gather together as best we can. I hope that answers your questions uh, about, you know, kind of how we're looking at things. I will tell you this, if you're going through something and there's Many people watching via live stream or watch this later. Please let us know. Reach out to us if you need prayer about anything because we don't know everything that's going on. And uh, with the weird year that it's been and moving into a new year, we don't know who's staying away because they're just watching and who may be going through something. So please call us. We're here at the church office Tuesday through Friday. And we would really like to know if you're going through something, we want to pray for you and with you. Uh, you are our family. We miss so many of you that we haven't seen for quite a long time. It seems, you know, moving almost to a year now where we haven't seen some of the people that we really love. And this is precious. I was praying before this uh, Sunday morning service and thinking, Lord, this is a gift to be able to worship you and be with your people today. So let, let's treat it that way. Amen? Okay, we are starting a new study. We're in the book of Exodus. We are going to go verse by verse through the book of Exodus. You excited? I'm excited. What a glorious book, and the overall title, Salvation, Redemption, and Glory, the book of Exodus. We are, our first message is the house of bitter bondage. This particular message will move us into a time of communion, so I hope you have the elements uh, and you'll be ready for that as we come to the end of this message. But the book of Exodus is where we are. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for... Every precious person that's gathered, whether they're here, inside, outside, or watching via live stream, they are our family. We're so grateful for family members in other states that have been become really part of our family through this time. Thank you for that beautiful uh, reality of how you've added to your church. And it's really kind of, you know, for many of us, simplified a lot of things in our lives and caused us to press into you. And I pray that this year your word would spread rapidly and be honored in our lives. Let it start with us. Let it move to our country. We pray over our country right now. We pray that your will will be done in America. There's a lot going on in the political world. There's a lot going on in terms of just the society at large. And I just pray, Father, that your will would be done. You'd have mercy on this country. So many have been crying out to you, uh, praying that this country would align itself back with the values of heaven. So help us, Lord. And as we study your word, I pray that you would show us great and mighty things that will 
forever imprint our lives with the power of our God and the delivering power of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray and all God's people said, amen. The book of Exodus means exit or departure. J. Vernon McGee says it means the way out. The famous words ring throughout history, let my people go. And that was Moses who had been called by God at that famous burning bush who confronted the Pharaoh and called for him to release God's people out of their bitter bondage. Let my people go is recorded at least six, seven times. And that is release the people from slavery. And the ultimate question, who are you going to serve? The word Exodus first appears in Exodus 19.1. When the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, the verb used for their leaving, Egypt, was translated into Greek as Exodus. The, uh, the Exodus then is the story of their departure out of Egypt and an epic journey from slavery to salvation. It's been pointed out that the book of Exodus is a book about salvation and it is our story And it's the story about how we've been rescued by our great God and how because of the blood of the Lamb, He passes over us, does not judge us because of our sin, but passes over us because of the blood of the Lamb. Riken writes, This adventure takes place under the hot sun, the book of Exodus, just beyond the shadow of the great pyramids. There are two mighty nations, Israel and Egypt, led by two great men, Moses the liberating hero, and Pharaoh, the enslaving villain. Almost every scene is a masterpiece. Once heard, the story is never forgotten. For Jews, it is the story that defines their very existence, the rescue that made them God's people. For Christians, it is the gospel of the Old Testament, God's first great act of redemption. Turn over to Exodus chapter 6 for a second. Let me just show you a a little section that you could take as an overall big strokes or themes of the book. Exodus 6, this is what it says. It says, verse 6, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, Exodus 6, 6, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Verse 8. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give you, to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. This book is a book about the Lord revealing the fact that he is faithful to his promises, promises that he made way back in the book of Genesis to a man named Abram who became Abraham. There's a great prophecy in the book of Genesis. Take a look. Genesis chapter 15, just the book before Exodus. And here's something that God said to uh, Abram at the time. His name was Abram at the time, then became Abraham. And this prophecy was given to Abram before the nation was. And it was a prophecy given as Abram trusted in the Lord and experienced what we call imputed righteousness. Here's what it says. Genesis 15, verse 12. Excuse me. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Genesis 15, 13, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. Now, that particular prophecy written, uh, Abraham is about 1900 B.C., so There are two main views, by the way, on the dating of the Exodus. Some date it early in the 15th century B.C., and some date it a little later in the 13th century B.C. If you watch Cecil B. DeMille's movie, The Ten Commandments, how many of you have seen that movie? You all should have seen that movie. It's a glorious movie. Cecil B. DeMille's depiction, he gives it a late date, 
that is the 13th century. And the two main characters there are Seti. Seti is the pharaoh before Ramses II. And Ramses is the pharaoh of the Exodus whom Moses has to confront and so forth. That is the late date, the 13th century. Remember the calendar in the BC is going down and then it goes up. So that is the late date, 13th century is the late date. And there are scholars who believe that the biblical narrative fits that dating. But again, we don't know for sure because the Pharaoh of the Exodus is not named. There's another group of historians and scholars that believe in the early date, the 15th century, and say that the Pharaoh of the Exodus comes off the heels of an invasion of what's called the, I think it's the Hyksos uh, invaders into Egypt. And they were a Semitic people that took over portions of Egypt for a time. And then Egypt won back their country. And that part of the skittishness of the Pharaoh of the book of Exodus is he doesn't want that to happen again. He doesn't want to lose his nation to Semitic invaders and uh, that's part of why uh, he does what he does with the children of Israel. That's uh, a bit of conjecture. There are powerful lessons, a lot of intriguing types in the book of Exodus. A type is a foreshadowing of something else like the uh, salvation or Jesus. Egypt is a type of the world. Pharaoh is a type of Satan, a picture of Satan, if you will. Moses is a picture or a type of Christ. We will see pictures of sin, Satan, salvation, God-saving power, slavery, which is bondage to sin, the Savior or the Deliverer, and we will even watch the process of sanctification of the children of Israel. The book of Jude comments and says, The Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, verse 5, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. The book of Exodus is a book about faith. And it actually comes up in the Hall of Faith. I want to show you, as we do a bit of an introduction, in the book of Hebrews, the great Hall of Faith, we call it, Hebrews 11, turn over there for a second, the Exodus gets some mention and some detail and, uh, again, couches it around the idea of faith. Here's what it says. <clears throat> Hebrews 11, verse 22 it says, by faith, Joseph, Hebrews eleven twenty two, 22, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. We'll talk more about Joseph in a moment. By faith, Moses, Hebrews eleven twenty three, 23, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict or the Pharaoh's edict. By faith, 24, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the Pharaoh or the king. He endured as seeing him who is unseen, that's faith. <clears throat> By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Now there's a summary, if you turn back to the book of Exodus, of some of the faith uh, acts that took place in this great book of Exodus. The author of the book of Exodus and uh, the early date places this around uh, 1445 B.C. if you're interested and I can share more for those of you who want more detail. But the author of the book of Exodus is Moses and there is no doubt that Moses is the author. Mosaic authorship is fairly easy to prove. Let me just share a little bit with you about the division of the book and we'll come back to the authorship. Two main divisions of the book of Exodus, chapters 1 through 19, are God's rescue of his people from Egypt. And then the second great division, chapters 20 through 40, are about getting them out of Egypt and safely to Sinai, and then discovering how God wishes to be worshipped as they will embark on the building of the tabernacle. One writer says, God takes them out of harm's way and brings them into sacred space. 
And that's what God does for us too. He takes us out of the realm of the world, the drumbeat of the world, and he brings us safely into sacred space. In this case, it is to walk with him. It is to learn who God is. Often in the Bible and in the book of Exodus, God will say, then you will know that I am the Lord. So God's self-disclosure is a big part of the book of Exodus, and it is also to prepare a people to be a kingdom of priests to our God and a people to be the light, a light to the world. And of course, ultimately, through Abraham, Isaac, (coughs) Jacob, and so on through the nation, it is to bring forth the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this special people is preserved to bring forth the law, to preserve the Hebrew scriptures, to bring the line to the Messiah through the tribe of Judah. This is what God is doing with Israel to bring hope and light to mankind. And so God will disclose himself over and over. He'll disclose his holiness. He says to Moses, take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. At Mount Sinai, he says, tell the people not even to touch the mountain lest they die. I am holy. And Moses, at some point later on in the book of Exodus, will say, Lord, show me your glory. I want to see who you are. And God says, no one can see my face and live. But I will allow you to see the back parts of my beauty or my holiness. Moses, as he grew in that relationship with God, he wanted to see the Lord. Show me your glory. I want to see you, Lord. That's what this became about. And Moses, of course, had a special relationship with the Lord. People have divided Moses' life into three 40-year periods, 40 years in Pharaoh's court in Egypt, 40 years in the desert in Midian being trained, and 40 years in the wilderness, wilderness as leader of Israel. Moses didn't really get going until he was 80. That should give a lot of you hope who are thinking that, you know, maybe you should retire and play golf for the rest of your life. Don't do that because you'll get sick of golf, and golf is a frustrating, humbling game anyway. And so it doesn't matter what age you are, God can use you and does use us. And the things that we go through, experiences like even Moses being in Pharaoh's court and calling, being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, it was preparation for him to be used mightily by God. God can use anything and everything in our lives, especially pain. And, you know, I, I look back on uh, a period of time where I worked in the secular world. I didn't enter into full-time ministry uh, until I was 33. And I won't tell you how long ago that was. But uh, I had uh, an experience with a boss who was not a Christian, but he taught me a lot of things about how to do things well, how to show up on time, how to write letters, how to deal with people. And then God used that in my later ministry life Uh, You can learn things from a lot of different areas, and God will use things, even experiences with difficult people, which, uh, you know, ministry is is really about people, and there's a few difficult people in the church. There's There's not many, but there's a few. You should be smiling a little bit. Anyway, uh, we'll go back to Moses. (laughs) Exodus mentions Moses' writing, if you're taking notes, in 1714 of Exodus 24.4. And 34:27. In Acts 7, 22 and 23, just listen to it. It says, Moses, Acts 7, 22, 23, was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. This is Stephen talking. He was a man of power in words and deeds, God's power. But when he was approaching the age 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. In Exodus 24.4, it says, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. In John 5.46 and 47, for those of you taking notes on Mosaic authorships, Jesus said to the religious Jews of his day, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me, John 5.46-47. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? Jesus attributes the first five books of what we call the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, 
to Mosaic or the authorship of Moses. If Jesus believed that Moses wrote the first five books, then so do I. And there's a lot of people, I'll give you an example. This is one of my commentaries on the book of Exodus. Uh, there are people who write and write and write and write, but their foundations are off to begin with because Jesus said, Moses wrote Exodus. End of story for me. Amen? You guys out there? It's a new year. You should be a little bit more vibrant. Anyway. The Ten Commandments come from Moses. Uh, Jesus, in Mark 7.10, says, Moses said, honor your father and your mother. In Mark 12.26, Jesus answering the Sadducees about a question about resurrection says, regarding the fact that the dead rise again. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, Mark 12, 26, how God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Some of you are saying, why didn't Jesus say it says that in Exodus 3? Because at the time of Jesus, there were no chapter breaks in the Bible. They came later for our navigational purposes. So that's why Jesus said in the chapter about the burning bush. And do you know who spoke to Moses from the burning bush? Jesus. Because the one who was within the burning bush is described as the angel of the Lord. So I think Jesus knew a little bit about the story of Exodus, don't you think? Yes. And he attributed the authorship of the book to Moses. This is Luke 24, 27. Beginning with Moses on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Hear it. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Jesus went back through the Bible, did a Bible study with those two dejected uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus, went through it, began with the books of Moses, and Mosaic authorship is undoubtedly the case. I mentioned to you two major views of the Exodus, uh, the Pharaoh of the Exodus. I won't get into more of that, but I will tell you that uh, the the story of Moses ends when he dies on Mount Nebo when he's 120 years old in Deuteronomy 34, and he never gets to enter the Promised Land, which is kind of sad because he does misrepresent God uh, in one of those occasions that I think many of you are familiar with. And we'll get to look at that as we get into chapter 17. But it is interesting that Moses does appear in the promised land later. Do you remember when? At the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is transfigured, and a lot of people think that he's on Mount Hermon, and Moses and Elijah appear. And so Moses eventually, people would say, did get to enter the promised land just a little bit later, right? <laughs> As he appeared talking with Jesus. And it is interesting, just write this down for your notes. In Luke 9, 28 through 31, it says, Moses and Elijah, Luke 9, 28 through 31, appeared with Jesus on the mountain glory, and they were speaking about his departure, which he would accomplish at Jerusalem. And the word departure in Greek is Exodus. Isn't that amazing? And what Jesus was going to do is die on the cross, rise from the dead, and then he was going to depart back where? Into heaven through his ascension, and he was going to have his own exodus, but first he would rescue his people as the Passover lamb. Some people say the absence of any Egyptian record of the devastating uh, plagues in Egypt, the ten plagues, and the major defeat of Pharaoh's elite army at the Red Sea should cause pause to question the book of Exodus. But that should not cause speculation as to the authenticity of the historical account. One writer says, Egyptian historiography did not permit records of their pharaoh's embarrassments and ignominious defeats to be published. Rather, their records read more like propaganda. However, says another writer, a text called The Administration of an Egyptian Sage, also known as Papyrus uh, Elpur, describes a series of disasters that sound very much like the biblical plagues, close quote. So uh, there's, there's uh, well-attested evidence 
that the Egyptians would not document such a defeat because they didn't want it in their record books that uh, little old Pharaoh got humbled by the God of Israel, right? And you know that the ultimate story of the Exodus is that the God of Israel, the true God, his plagues are against the false gods of Egypt. This is Exodus 12, 12. Take a peek just with me as we set a little bit more foundation. Exodus 12, 12 says, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, speaking of the Passover, Exodus 12, 12, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and notice, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And so the Lord deals with the false pantheon of Egyptian gods and deals with them plague upon plague uh, in the, uh, the ten plagues. And finally, I just want to show you one more prophecy. It's in Genesis 50, so just a page or two back for a second. This is the end of the book of Genesis. The opening line of Exodus tells us that there's a connection between Genesis and Exodus. It is, it is a sequel to Genesis. And the book of Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. And here's what it says. Exodus 50, look at verse 17. Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression, transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers, 50, 18 of Genesis, also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am, am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Since Joseph was the second to the youngest, uh, second only to Benjamin, there are scholars who believe that Joseph is the last of the sons of Jacob to die. He lived a long life, 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Mecher, the sons of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. That could be his brethren, not his uh, actual physical brothers, but you can, you can consider that. I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you. You shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. The last words of the book of Genesis, and now the opening uh, words of Exodus. Scholars say the Hebrew should be uh, rendered and a sequel to Genesis. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They, each, they came each one with his household. Now, we're going to have a genealogy here. And it's going to list this family because you guys need to just be reminded, and, and this may be new for some of you, that the 12 tribes of Israel are Jacob's sons. So the promise from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, he's renamed Israel, and then he has 12 boys, and there's also a daughter. And those 12 boys become the 12 tribes, which the story now continues of their sojourn or their time in Egypt and then their deliverance. And so the genealogical, genealogical record is important just to document this. And these are the sons. They are Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Uh, there's a little question as to the order, but some would just say there's a matriarchal order here. These four come through Leah, who was Jacob's first wife. Now, he was tricked into marrying Leah, remember? On the wedding night, she had a veil on. He thought he was marrying his true love, Rachel. But lo and behold, it was Leah. <laughs> Whoops, <laughs> what's happened here? And Uncle Laban said, well, I had to marry off the oldest one first. Uh, give me seven more years and you can have the other one as well. Rats, 
The conniver got connived because, you know, Jacob was a bit of a conniver and he got tricked by Uncle Laban. You have Issachar and Zebulun. They come later through Leah as well. You have Benjamin, who came by Rachel, uh, Jacob's true love, you would say. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. Dan and Naphtali come through Bilhah, who is Rachel's maid or uh, a concubine. And then Gad and Asher come by, and that's verse 4, Zilpah, who was Leah's maid. I did a chapter teaching when we went through the book of Genesis called Wrestling Sisters. These sisters were going at it because they had the same husband. And some of you say, why did God allow uh, this to happen? I thought you're supposed to only be married to one woman. It's true. But sometimes another woman was brought into a marriage because of infertility, and she would literally become a second wife to bear children to that man. I will tell you this. Whenever multiple wives happen in the Bible, it is a unmitigated disaster. Now, God allows free will, and there are different, you know, uh, things that happen in the ancient world. They didn't have the same technologies and so forth that we have today. But when these things happen, it was a disaster. And by the way, the head of the family of Israel, Jacob, had 12 sons through four different women. That's the patriarchal family of Israel. <laughs> and if you've ever read through the story of the book of Genesis, some of it reads like a Jerry Springer week-long group of episodes. It's incredible <laughs> what happens with this family, and it gives me great hope. You know why? If God can use people like that, perhaps he can use someone like me. Amen? Because we're all saved by grace through faith. And by the way, he couldn't have found a perfect family on the planet because there are none. So sometimes we step back and we go, those people of the Old Testament, they were a mess. Yes. Just like me and you. Now, I'm not making excuses for their blunders or their sins. There were consequences you know, as night follows day, but there you go. There's the list. All the persons, five, who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, 70 souls literally in all. But Joseph, now here's the 12th son you didn't see in the earlier verses. Joseph was already in Egypt because he was sold into slavery by his loving, jealous brothers, <laughs> But God used it all. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Genesis 50, verse 26, to keep many people alive. Genesis 50, verse 26, is the Romans 8, 28 of the Old Testament. We know that God works all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so God even used the jealous brothers and them selling Joseph into slavery to cause him to rise to leadership. And Joseph had his own pain, but that's what they went through. Some of the accounts, by the way, say 70 persons. Some say 75, like Acts 7, 14. Probably attributed to the addition of five relatives of Joseph. Joseph from the families of Manasseh and Ephraim, which are included in the Septuagint or the Greek translation. Uh, Josephus also says 75. The book of Jubilees says 75. But the Hebrew text says 70. It's just a different way of counting. There's no contradiction. Verse 6 says Joseph died. All his brothers, that's the patriarchal family, and all that generation. That's the end of the story. The death of Joseph. They enter into the land. They have 70, 75 persons. And there is the little nation of Israel. Do you know that that little nation of Israel, from the time they entered the land and they were so uh, bereft through infertility of some of their major uh, women and matriarchs, when they leave Egypt, historians conservatively say 400 years later, do you know how many people are now in the nation? About 2 million people. 
they go from 70 to 2 million in a foreign land and in a land of slavery. That is amazing. And by the way, that is why the Egyptians were so freaked out by them. Uh, in fact, the Hebrew midwives, uh, and this is an excuse that they make, but they say that the Hebrew women are very vigorous. <laughs> we can't get there, and they've had another kid, another kid, another kid. And that's what happens. They multiply in Egypt. Now, the sons, the, but the sons of Israel, seven, were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied. They became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. They grew from 70 to uh, 70 men, to 603,000 males, 20 years of age or older. You can reference Numbers 146 and 147. The Levites, by the way, were not numbered. If you add uh, 603,000 and add women and children, that's how we get to about the 2 million number. God said to Abram, I will establish my covenant between me and you, I will multiply you exceedingly, Genesis 17, 2. Psalm 105, 23 through 26 says, Israel also came into Egypt. Thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. He caused, God did, his people to be very fruitful, made them stronger than their adversaries. He turned their heart to hate his people, that is Egypt, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen, and there come the ones that will bring deliverance. Now, a transition. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, notice it's a new king. You either have king or pharaoh. They're the kind of the synonymous uh, title. And he did not know Joseph. Now, Joseph was how prominent in the nation was he? He rose up to second in leadership in Egypt. He saved the nation through those dreams that he interpreted and what he thought should be done by storing grain. He was a hero in the nation. How is it that this uh, Pharaoh that rises up, and this is you know obviously a long time later, how is it that he did, does not know Joseph? Well, there's a lot of different conjecture, but this new king apparently either didn't hear about Joseph, which I find hard to believe, or there's another reason. He was uh, hesitant about this rising nation. The Israelites, says one writer, were now foreigners in a country whose government hated foreigners under a pharaoh who surely determined to prevent what uh, he saw as the miseries of the past returning. Would have had not the slightest sense of loyalty to any agreements with the Hyksos predecessors who worked with Joseph, depending on your view of the timing. The functional implication of he did not know Joseph is therefore he refused to honor any prior arrangements protecting the status of the Israelites. He just saw them as a threat, and he said, this, the past may be the past, but we're no longer doing business that way. And he put aside the contributions of Joseph because it was a new government era for his people. And he forgot about the contributions of a man named Joseph. And I can't help but think of our country right now because we have forgotten about the origins of our country. If you go to the Capitol buildings in D.C., there are scriptures everywhere. Now there's a whole portion of our country who likes to mock Christians for their guns and their Bibles and uh, so forth and so on and almost ignore that the whole country was built on biblical values and the textbook in our schools was what? The Bible. But that seemingly now, at least in some circles of our country, is gone. We don't want to talk about that anymore. We're different and we're new. J. Vernon McGee says, there's always a new generation that has never heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's always necessary to teach the next generation what happened in the previous generations. Judges 2.10 says, All that generation, Judges 2.10, also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after the time of Joshua. 
after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel, Judges 2.10. They forgot about God. It only takes one generation. And that's why parents and grandparents, your job is to teach your children what the Lord has done for you, who he is, the truth about his nature, the truth of their value, the truth that they are made in the image of God, the truth that God has a plan for their lives, the truth that they, are, they rise high above the, the animals and the, the other things on the planet. They're the singular being made in the image of God. They have great value, great purpose, and great destiny and a transcendent cause to live for while they are here on the planet. We must teach that, because if we don't, who is going to? I ask you, who's going to do it if you don't do it? If you don't make church a priority, if you don't say to your next generation, whether they like it or not, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, it's going to get away from us quickly. Do you know that before COVID happened, I was reading a book, portions of a book that said, with the way the trajectory of population growth in the United States is, and the younger generations who are not putting a priority on church attendance, and there's a lot of them that don't, don't believe anything anymore, they, are saying, they were saying before COVID hit, that at this rate, that churches in America will close by the thousands in the next 10 years because they will simply be unsustainable because people are putting less priority on being part of the church, giving to the work of the Lord, and churches will have to decide whether they can keep a building open, pay a pastor, or just shut down. And this trajectory, which is based upon math, says that if this continues, small churches, 350 or less, will shut down in droves in the next decade. Hmm. Do you think that's why God's allowed this to rock us a little bit? I mean, God is sovereign. Does he have our attention yet? Would you say that we've repented of our major sins as a nation since all of this went down? What do you think? These are questions that we must ponder. Psalm 106, uh, recounting, the Exodus says, Our fathers in Egypt did not understand God's wonders. Psalm 106, 7 and 8. They did not remember thine abundant kindnesses, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. The fact that this uh, Pharaoh did not know Egypt, says one writer, has a stronger, more belligerent thrust the new pharaoh refuses to acknowledge the worth of Joseph's contribution to Egypt's well-being, close quote. He just won't go there. He doesn't want to talk about the past. And he said to his people, and this is setting us up now for the Egyptian bondage, and we'll move quickly. He said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are more and mightier than we, probably addressing his uh, administration. Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and in the event of war, they also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart. That is the idea of Exodus, but it is technically means ascend from the land. Now, if a war did occur, think with me for a second. If a war occurred and Israel got up and bailed from the land, why would that bother the Egyptians? Why, why would that be an issue? Just think about it. If an invading army came in from another nation and all the Israelites got up and left Egypt, why would that be an issue? Well, this particular word depart in verse 10 in the New American Standard is a Hebrew idiom. And I was reading something recently where a great case is made that the idea of the word is a rising up and that essentially this Pharaoh says to administration, if we let this go on, the Israelites are going to take over. And if there's a war, they're going to ascend. Here's the meaning of the idiom. They're going to overflow us. They'll join with our enemies and they'll take our country just like those Hyksos 
rulers did who were from the same ethnic uh, you know, bloodlines, if you will, or at least similar. And we can't allow that to happen again. And he stirred the pot. And he, he did kind of a Hitler-type thing. It's the Jews. The Jews are the problem. We, we've got to do something. They're going to rise up against us. They're going to take everything that belongs to us. There's too many of them. They have too much influence. Hmm. Sound familiar? Do you know if Christians would ever realize how many there are in our nation and actually get together and become unified, we could change the world, but we're too busy fighting about the color of the carpet and what we like and what we don't like and so on. You feel me? If we realize how many people actually claim the name of Christ and we stood up and actually did something with our values, we could permeate and change the world. The word of God would spread rapidly and be honored. Amen? This is what we need to pray. It's time for revival. Let 2021 be that time. And so Pharaoh was spouting ethnic hate, propaganda, the sort, says one writer, widely employed in the modern world to justify ethnic persecution and eventually genocide, and it's happened over and over and over again in multiple countries. But one thing that happened with the way that this was set up is that Israel had to come together, and they, it protected their, them as a nation, and it preserved their identity. Even their enslavement did that. Now, Pharaoh, if he was so concerned about the Israelites, he could have just let them go now, right? He could have just said, you guys are... You guys are over a million people now. Just leave our country. You know, there's some good land over there. He could have just let them go. And boy, would he have saved himself and future pharaohs a whole lot of problems because he didn't know who he was dealing with because he is about to encounter the God of Israel. Amen? And he doesn't know who he's fighting against. Your arms are too short, Pharaoh, to box with the God of the Bible. Do you remember the end of Cecil B. DeMille's depiction when Joel Brenner, Brenner sits down on his throne and his wife says to him, Did you kill him? Did you kill him? I want to see his blood on your sword. He says, No, I didn't kill him. And then Joel Brenner famously says, His God is God. Dun, 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 dun. It's a glorious scene. Anyway, the Lord is a warrior, Exodus 15, 3. The Lord is his name. 